Aphrodite, a humorous Regency novel by D.G. Rampton. Chapter 34 and 35. After leaving her bedchamber, April went downstairs to the music parlour and vented her tangled emotions on her grandmother's prized Clementi piano. With one hand heavily bandaged, it was an indifferent practice, and by the time His Grace and Mr Kepling made an appearance, she was happy to be cajoled into joining them in the connecting room while they breakfasted. She was partway through an edited explanation as to the cause of the injury to her hand when the starling ladies joined them. Mother and daughter glided into the room, a picture of femininity, and graciously greeted April and His Grace, who were already seated at the table. They then joined Mr Kepling at the sideboard, where he was serving himself, and proceeded to engage him in what appeared to be a mutually enjoyable conversation. When my cousin turns his attention on our companions, observed His Grace, leaning closer to April, they become so agreeable I have never liked them better. It would be difficult to be anything but agreeable in Alfie's company, she replied. He is exceptionally good-natured. True, however, the effect is particularly pronounced in this instance. One can almost warm to Mrs Starling, which is saying a great deal. And as for Miss Starling, we have all suffered from her diligent attempts to be amiable, but it is only with my cousin that she truly achieves her objective. Her practice performance is forgotten and she blossoms into a remarkably charming girl. Surely you have noticed. April had not noticed. Disconcerted by what he might mean, she turned to observe Miss Starling as she conversed with Mr Kepling. I suppose there is an openness to her that is not usually there, she owned. And note the blushes, said His Grace. It is almost as if she is... Oh, but of course, he exclaimed dramatically, a sparkle of mischief in his eye. Why did I not think of it before? My cousin and Miss Starling would be an ideal coupling. April looked at him sharply, frowning. Perhaps it never occurred to you, because Miss Starling is betrothed to Mr Royce. No, that's not it, he replied incorrigibly. Eustace, it would be most improper to attempt to break off their engagement. But if Miss Starling were to break it off, surely then there could be no objection. There might be at least one objection, she persevered. You are thinking of Mr Royce. Never fear. He won't object. He is as pleasantly indifferent to Miss Starling as she is to him. In fact, I have reason to believe he would be greatly relieved. Unless you are in his confidence, you can know nothing of the sort. Unlike some I could mention, if I did not so lamentably lack the courage, I have never been blind to Mr Royce's feelings on this particular subject. I fail to understand you when you become clever, she said. Fail or willfully refuse? She threw him a reproving look. It is entirely Mr Royce's affair if he has chosen Miss Starling. Whether or not we believe them to be ill-matched is irrelevant. I never said they were ill-matched, his grace clarified. Did you not? she said, looking self-conscious. I supposed that was what you meant. Not at all. 
I do not doubt they would have had a tolerably successful marriage if fate had not presented them with a more perfect alternative. And I suppose you would be delighted to have Mrs. Starling in the family, she rallied, raising an eyebrow at him. Can you tell me with all honesty that you would want such a mother-in-law for Alfie? She may not be to our taste, but we cannot deny my cousin is not as fastidious. And besides, Mrs. Starling's character resembles his mother's, so he's well accustomed to being managed and led. He cannot be content unless he surrenders his will to another. How appalling, she remarked, taken aback. That does not make it untrue. Well, no, but... Oh, please don't meddle, Eustace. There are enough people in this house who see fit to meddle in matters that don't concern them. You can't throw two people together and hope for a foregone conclusion. Love is not so easily conjured up. Perhaps not, he replied. But once its tender shoots have sprung forth of their own accord, is it so wrong to offer them a little assistance to grow in a direction better suited to all? You should have become a poet, she observed dryly. But am I wrong? April held his gaze for a few moments before looking away and playing with the place setting before her. You have failed to take into account that I have no wish to be saddled with that man, she said crossly, no longer pretending to misunderstand him. If you only knew the harsh things he has said to me throughout our acquaintance, including this very morning, you wouldn't be so hasty to pair us together. Sometimes I can almost believe he dislikes me. Has it not occurred to you, my dear, that knowing himself to be shackled, he believes he must do what he can to repel you? for honour's sake, and for his own sanity. That is simply conjecture on your part. I will not allow you to so neatly explain away the defects of his character. And even if, by some miracle, you are correct, you must realise I don't want... He's not what I... She broke off in frustration. It is difficult to lie to yourself, is it not? He said. Before April could tell him it was no such thing, Mrs. Delamere and Lady Hartwood walked into the dining room. Her annoyance suddenly found a new outlet, and on the spur of the moment, she decided to teach them both a well-earned lesson. Eustace, I want you to make love to me, she said urgently under her breath. Here? he asked with a good deal of amusement. Yes, you provoking creature, you know very well I mean flirt with me. It must appear as if we are on the brink of making a connection. And are we, my dear? Of course not. Pray don't be difficult. I need your help. There are certain persons present who must be brought to realise that their scheming will only produce an outcome they never desired. If you wish to teach Mrs. Delamere and your mother a lesson, I am at your disposal. He laughed at her vexed expression. Surely you did not expect me to misunderstand you. I had hoped the discretion on which you pride yourself would have made an appearance. His grace took hold of her unbound hand and kissed it reverentially. For you, fair Aphrodite, anything. April offered him a demure smile, happy in the knowledge that all eyes were on them. After allowing her hand to remain in his for a suitably noteworthy length of time, 
She removed it and picked up her teacup. Under cover of taking a sip, she said softly, Perfect. April and His Grace flirted their way through the next few hours in full view of their desired audience. An easy state of affairs to arrange as there was a snowstorm raging outside and everyone was confined to the house. Their efforts were greeted with a variety of reactions, depending on the predispositions of each spectator. Mrs Bolton and Mr Oatley welcomed the display with amusement and the occasional gleeful glance in Hugh's direction. Mrs Starling, when her thoughts were not centred on Sir Yarmouth and his flattering attentions, resigned herself to the notion that an engagement between April and His Grace was imminent, and, apart from some superior looks, took as lenient a view of the matter as could be expected. Her daughter, on the other hand, felt compelled to voice her disapproval to Mr Kepling and attempted to draw him into condemning the amorous couple's behaviour. But Mr Kepling's temperament and deep affection for his cousin overrode all self-righteous inclinations, and within a short space of time he had managed to cajole Miss Starling into exercising the compassionate side of her nature. Lord Wolfingston, Lord Paisley, General Simpson and Sir Yarmouth spent a good deal of the day playing whist and pharaoh in one of the reception rooms, and for the times they were in the couple's presence, April's sense of decorum shied away from any outrageous displays of affection. So there were in fact only three people who were unduly affected by April's and the Duke's determined flirting. After recovering from the shock of seeing her daughter making a spectacle of herself with the wrong gentleman, Lady Hartwood attempted to drop a hint in her ear that her behaviour was unbecoming. April's conscience was stung by her mother's evident distress. However, she was reconciled to her course by a deep-seated conviction that she would have been spared her mother's reproaches had her flirting been directed at Hugh. Mrs Delamere kept her emotions better hidden than her daughter, but it was clear that she too was greatly displeased. After one of April's particularly coquettish displays of partiality, when the opportunity for a private word presented itself, she told her granddaughter with some astringency, If you lean into his grace any closer when you speak to him, you may as well sit on his lap. Lady Hartwood, also present, added, Indeed, love, it is most unseemly. What in the world has led you to behave in such a way? But I thought this was what you both wanted, replied April, all innocence. Certainly not, said Lady Hartwood, looking shocked. It may have seemed as if we had a preference for his grace. Yes, it certainly did seem that way to me, April could not help interrupting. Her ladyship coloured faintly, but persevered. But love, it has been clear for weeks that you have little interest in that direction. I have changed my mind, declared April. Then you should prepare to be a wife in name only, her grandmother said bitterly entering the fray. The Duke, you may as well know, is not interested in your sex. What have you to say to that? Oh, that I already know, April replied with great nonchalance. Her grandmother's eyes flashed with annoyance. Do you? Then you should also know he is unlikely to go to the effort of siring an heir. Are you prepared to sacrifice the prospect of children? Perhaps you should have considered that when you forced me into the position of trying to attach him, 
April all but snapped. Oh no, not forced love, Lady Hartwood cried weakly. Perhaps there was some persuasion, but it was meant for the best. The best for whom? asked April indignantly. For you, of course. To marry a man who can never love me as I wish and is unlikely to give me children. That is hardly what I would call the best for me. Yes, most unsuitable, agreed Lady Hartwood, oblivious to her mother's warning look. But we never wished for you to marry his grace. Mrs. Delamere rolled her eyes in exasperation. April felt a strong desire to press them further, until they admitted their true purpose was to orchestrate a match between herself and Hugh. However, such a declaration would only bring an early end to the lesson she was intent on teaching them, and so she forced a smile. It matters not, Mamma, she said in a conciliatory tone. I am perfectly content with how matters stand. I have decided I have a fancy to become a duchess. No grandchildren, wailed Lady Hartwood. April almost crumbled at this point and confessed all. Happily for the success of her plan, His Grace approached with her lemonade and begged her to honour him with a game of chess. As they walked away to the other side of the room, where the chessboard had been set up, April thanked him for his timely intervention. I am as always yours to command, he said with a dramatic flourish of the hand. Only I fear that in doing my very agreeable duty to you, I may have placed myself in great jeopardy. I hold quite firm suspicions that I will not live out to see the day. You may have noticed, ever since I had the happy notion to sit beside you on the window seat and read you poetry, Mrs. Delamere has been staring daggers at me. As for Mr. Royce, before he detached his fiancée from my cousin and bore her away, he gave me the cut direct. Honesty compels me to warn you that I am not the bravest of men. If he should try to force a quarrel on me for the privilege of calling me out, I am likely to betray you and admit the whole to him. April laughed perfunctorily at this foolishness and pointed out, somewhat tartly, that it clearly mattered not to Mr. Royce whom she gave her affections, for his attention had been fixed on Miss Starling ever since he had deigned to join them downstairs, and, at the first opportunity offered, he had invented an excuse to be alone with her. Which was only as it should be, she added, with a deflated look in her eyes. End of chapter 34 and 35